Welcome everyone to the Aligned Living Podcast. My name is Sophie and I am your host and I am so grateful that you are here. If you're new here, the Aligned Living Podcast is a place to explore what it means to live an aligned life. We explore concepts such as yoga, spirituality, and self-care. Today, I am super excited to dive into a juicy topic with a dear friend and colleague in the industry, Katarina Whitcamp. Kat has been teaching yoga for well over a decade and also has a commerce degree from Queen's University. After university, she decided to make a change and find a path that felt more aligned. Kat currently lives in Canada, but has taught classes, workshops, and teacher trainings all over the world. She has an online yoga platform, Katarina Yoga. She lectures at teacher trainings and supports and mentors yoga teachers one-on-one. Welcome, Kat. Thank you, Sophie. I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy you're here. How are you feeling today? I feel good. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling filled up. How are you? Awesome. Cool. I'm feeling good. I'm really excited to dive into this topic about cult dynamics in the yoga industry specifically. I know a lot of people who will be listening are involved in the yoga industry and This is honestly just great information for anyone, no matter what kind of industry they find themselves in. So to get things started, why don't you talk to us a bit about what a cult is, what you understand a cult to be, so we can get everybody on the same page? Yeah, that's a great way to lead off. Um, It's such a hot topic right now, uh, especially with all of the recent news around Nexium um, and QAnon. I don't know if people have seen this, the Osho documentary called Wild Wild Country on Netflix. It's it's just such a relevant topic of discussion and um, one that we should look at, I think. Um, so a cult, cult is a really interesting word and it's gone through a lot of different definitions over the years. It kind of became de rigueur in terms of study in like the 1920s. Um, And you can loosely define it as having, as a group of people who follow or fall under certain characteristics. So it can be defined as a small religious group that lacks an organization And there's an emphasis on the private nature of personal beliefs. Hmm. So originally they were like deviant religious groups or religious groups that would branch off of like an overarching religious body. And um, often they're built around charismatic leaders, very charismatic leadership. And there is a, those charismatic leaders tend to have a strong following. Um, cults are often associated with beliefs in the divine, or as we call it in yoga, your true self or your soul or the Atman, um, your capital S self is like a frequently used term. And, um, it's, it's often cults often attract followers or participants who are searching for community, 
for meaning in life or think of themselves as being on some sort of a spiritual quest. Um, and it's, of course, it's not all like doom and gloom. It's not all negative. Um, cults can have benefits, <laughs> you know, being a part of community has so many benefits. Um, finding meaning through spirituality can offer enormous mental health benefits as I'm sure many of your listeners will understand. Um, but cults definitely also can be destructive and they can exploit and sometimes physically, sexually, or psychologically damage their members and recruits. Um, destructive cults typically can be described as being totalitarian in their systems of government. So participants don't get a say in how decisions are made within the group. And there can be an emphasis on money-making. So you have to pay a membership to join. You have to take a training to join. Um, like it's not free. The, the organization is profiting from the membership growing. Um, and at its sort of deepest end, it can result, cult membership can result in behavioral and personality changes. You feel like you've lost your personal identity. Um, you feel estranged from family, friends, and loved ones. You um, can feel also estranged from society, like the cult group is the safe group and society is a dangerous place to be or threatens the integrity of the cult-like group that you're a part of. Um, and there can often be a feeling of being mentally controlled by the leaders of the organization. So there's a lack of feeling of agent, personal agency and empowerment and like self-determination. It's really the emphasis is on like self-surrender and, um, like the followers don't really know what's good for them and to listen to the leaders and the leaders, the leaders are the ones who know. So it really appeals to a lot of language that we use in yoga around like letting go and trust and, you know, follow your bliss and, and trust in the divine guidance of your life and that kind of stuff where critical thinking is often not the, uh, the focus. Totally. And just listening to you explain what a cult is, it becomes clear to me how people can easily find themselves in, in cult-like circumstances. And I'm sure many of us oh. just listening are starting to hear some of the qualities that you're listing and we're thinking, you know, have I ever been involved in a cult myself? Or do I know someone that's been involved in a cult? Or we're thinking about cults that we've heard of and the qualities or characteristics that they take on. And I think, especially in the yoga world, like what you were talking about, it's just the conditions are almost perfect for someone to come through and create a cult out of this, you know, ideology and this, this path that we all follow, because in a lot of ways, there's that overlap. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, I guess, about why why you're interested in cults and what your experience with cult dynamics is and what got you interested to speak on this topic, which is so important. And I'm so grateful that you're here and willing to share your story. So thank you. And I think that it can mm -hmm. 
you know, you sharing your story can really help inform a lot of people and even help a lot of people heal. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you're able to share a bit about your experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, (laughs) we usually get interested in things that we've had personal experience with. So I was in an organization, um, that is described as having cult like dynamics. So, I wouldn't call it explicitly a cult, but I would say that it had certain cult-like dynamics that I experienced. Um, And I came out of that experience feeling extremely lost, very confused. And so I would say I invested a good I would say like four years in the process of unpacking what that experience was and reclaiming um, elements of self-trust and uh, Mm -hmm. redefining what spirit and spirituality means to me. Um, And so I'm pretty passionate about the topic because I think uh, especially in yoga, yoga, is, it's so disappointing. Yoga is marketed as being such a balm for the aches and pains of living in this social climate. And just like all things, it's not black and white. Um, and so I hope to share this information so that folks feel more equipped to have um, information critical thinking skills to approach these organizations with a little bit of um, critical thinking and discernment. Hmm. I think I repeated myself there a little bit, but it's like, basically it's the, it's the MO that we all experience of like, I hope to save other people from the suffering that I went through. And I think I would like to make other people's decision-making process of whether to stay or leave an organization a little bit easier by sharing my experience. That's a way to put it more succinctly. Totally. And I think that's at some level, that's all, that's what we're all doing here. You know, I believe as teachers, we teach the lessons, the things that were the most impactful or most important for us to learn. And this certainly played a really big part, not only in your own personal life, but in your yoga journey as well. So what kinds of people do you think would be drawn towards cult-like organizations um, or organizations that demonstrate cult-like behavior? And why do you think they would be drawn? Like, what do people get out of being in a cult? Because so often we just, we just hear about the negative of it and, and we think, why would somebody want to do that? But certainly there's something in it for them. Otherwise they wouldn't be there in the first place. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, so I rem- I was in um uh, like a Facebook group um after so how do I say this so I was in a Facebook group for the organization members and it had just come out that the organization had um a history of mental physical and sexual abuse of its members hmm. um and Matthew Remsky who is the uh, sort of journalist, researcher, social scientist of the Conspirituality podcast, he was in that Facebook group and helping the members to discern what was being said. 
And at one point he piped up and he was like, I think we can say that this organization has cult like dynamics. And I was floored. And I had so, I experienced so much inner judgment of like, oh my God, I can't believe that I, who I consider to be a pretty smart person could end up in an organization that's described as having cult-like or cult-like characteristics. So I kind of went out searching for like, how did this happen? Um, and what I found was really soothing is that people who are most drawn to cult-like organizations are people who aspire for the world being a better place. They want to live in a more peaceful world. It's often, they often attract people who are at some sort of a crisis point in their life and they're looking for solutions. Um, so they're feeling vulnerable. They're feeling like they're looking for answers to why there is so much suffering in their own life and the life of others. And they would probably describe themselves as being on a, some sort of a spiritual quest for healing, deeper meaning. Um, and you see a lot of that in yoga. Like most people who show up to a yoga studio, you don't go to yoga. I say this all the time. You don't go to yoga because life is awesome. You show up to a class mm -hmm. because you're in some sort of pain and you're hoping that the yoga is going to help. And often it does. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That's so, so it's helpful really like because anyone. <laughs> for sure. I was just going to say that's so helpful because I think we can all see a bit of ourselves in those qualities that you just listed and described. And yeah. so as we get more into your personal experience and what drew you to the organization in the first place, um, I just want to clarify if you're comfortable naming the organization or you'd rather not name the organization. That's such a great question. Um, I think not. Okay. I think not. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So going from there, what drew you towards this organization that demonstrated cult-like dynamics in the first place? What do you think you were personally seeking? Like after all of this healing that you've done, this deep introspection, what do you gather got you there? Um, a lot of the points that I listed above, <laughs> I tick a lot of those boxes. Yeah. Um, I was definitely in a very deep period of inner turmoil. So for my friends who study astrology, I was 28 years old. I was closing in on my Saturn return. Um, and so there was this sort of impending feeling of like wanting to take life more seriously and particularly wanting to take my yoga practice more seriously. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And this organization that I was a part of is sort of known as being one of the big, long-standing traditional yoga organizations. They're global. They have eight enormous ashrams around the world. They attract very famous um, people within the yoga and spirituality industry. So it was like an easy choice to go there. Um I was also going through a inner crisis. So 
I had just had a repressed traumatic childhood memory come to the surface of my consciousness. So I was in, in a definite crisis point in terms of what to do with that information. And I was grasping for solutions. I was grasping for stability and guidance and community. I just knew that I needed more support around me. Um, but after doing much more um, deep healing work around this chapter of life, I can really see that I was looking for an out. I really wanted to be enlightened, which is such a hot word for yogis. It's such like a holy grail of like, if I just meditate enough, if I just practice yoga in the right way and enough, then I'll be enlightened, i.e., what translates to a person who's grown up in a capitalist society, patriarchal society is I'll be perfect Mm -hmm. and I won't experience so much inner pain and I'll be free. So it felt like, cool, this is the organization who's doing it the best from that lens. They're the most traditional, they're the most sort of disciplined and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to get healed. I literally, Sophie, I had a timeline. You're going to laugh. I was so A-type about this. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the level one teacher training. And then I'm going to go stay in the ashram and I'm going to do like an intensive with them. And then after that two weeks, I will experience enlightenment. And then I will go back home and like continue on working. (laughs) I literally had a timeline. I was like, it'll just be like that. It'll be so neat and clean. (laughs) Right. Which is like laughable now. Um, yeah, it's like, like that we can thinking. plan, like we can plan for enlightenment to happen, <laughs> right? If only we could, if only that's, we could. That's my business school shining through, you know, it's like very operations management. Like I'm just going to check these boxes and clear this bottleneck. Yeah, done. Next. It's funny. I now. love it. I yeah. love it. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I mean, I think all of that makes perfect sense. You know, I find myself in situations quite often where I'm like, I just wish that someone could tell me what to do, you know? And then when you have that charismatic person, who's like, I actually have the answer for you. Right. And then you have that inner desperation and you see that someone out there has the answer. It's like, why not? Why wouldn't I just try? Why wouldn't I just go? It's only this much money. It's only this many weeks. Like they're promising enlightenment. I may as well go for it. So that makes so much sense to me. And I think we all do this in, in micro ways all the time, you know, whether that is, um, constantly asking advice for other people from other people, which is something that I'm trying to do less of, or just disempowering ourselves by saying, I don't know when the truth is at some level, you probably do know what's best, but maybe it scares you to actually, to actually do that thing. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about this yoga organization as a way to almost bypass the pain that you were experiencing in your life, like the idea was, Mm -hmm. let me go study and then I'll be enlightened and I won't have to deal with this anymore. And I think what's so interesting is I know the way that you teach and I teach similarly, it's we don't teach to bypass the pain. We teach to learn how to be with the pain because that's mm-hmm. the the only way out is through it, right? Mm-hmm. And all of these tools just give us that 
ability to sit in the discomfort and nobody can take away that discomfort for you. Not even yourself. You just have to be with it until it dissolves. And that's the true gift of yoga. That's, and to me, that's like the realistic enlightenment that like pain's never going away. It's, Mm -hmm. it's always going to be here in some form. And how can I get comfortable with it? More comfortable with it because it's an uncomfortable feeling and, and place to be. Yeah. Um, and what a great teaching, although it sounds like you had to navigate some pretty painful times to get there, which always kind of seems to be the way you got to earn the wisdom in some shape or form. Oh dude. Yeah. Yeah. And the irony is I really thought that I was going into the pain. I thought that I was confronting Mm. it. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's confusing because in the organization, they tell you that you're not avoiding life, even though you've removed yourself from modern society. You're told this is not you avoiding your life. This is you being of service. This is the highest path, capital H. This is the highest form of spirituality is you being of service. So you really think, oh, I'm, I'm really doing good things here. And in a sense, you are, again, it's not black and white. Like, I'm not saying that period of time had no meaning. um, But do I think that that's probably the best way for folks to work through their significant trauma? Like maybe for a time, but I think it's very rare that that is the, the path for the majority of people to follow. I think it's a very select few where that is their the path where they feel um, a, a long-term sense of uh, alignment, if that makes sense. For sure. Oh, for sure. I can even think of a few very well-known teachers who have left organizations, you know, Jay Shetty, um, Sally Kelton. Oh, yeah. These are all people who were really? indoctrinated to a certain belief system for a very long period of time. And at a certain point, they were like, this actually just no longer feels aligned. For some people, like you said, Mm. it may be a long-term fit, but I agree. I think that's a much smaller percentage of people than, than we are told that it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I would love to know a bit about some of the things that you experienced while you were involved in this organization. Um, Yeah. How did you experience these cult-like dynamics at play? Um, All right. So I'll start very kind of well, maybe this is a big deal. So you're given a new name. You're given a new name and you opt into it. So it's not forced on you. You don't have to take a new name. Um, It's given to you at teacher training near the end of the training. And it's sort of like the teachers have observed you for the last four weeks and they bestow a new name upon you. And so for the time that you're in the organization, And I lived there for a year as staff. Um, Nobody called me Katerina. My name was Shakti. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And and it's interesting because I have still, I do still have like warm feelings about that name, but that's just one way. So you're stripped of your, your like sense of self, your, your sense of your previous life. So now you're Shakti. You're in this community, you have a new name. You no longer have your family's name. The name that your parents gave you or your 
um, parental figures gave you, you have a new name. Okay. From there, you're also no longer wearing your own clothing. As staff, you're only wearing um, <laughs> clothing that is like color appropriate for the organization. And um, that's all you're allowed to wear. You're not allowed to wear your street clothes while you're in the ashram. So again, that's like another layer of your identity that's removed or another form of your like personal expression. Um, another piece is you're no longer allowed to watch movies or TV shows or muse listen to music or podcasts that are not approved by the swamis or the leaders of the organization. So you're only allowed to watch media that's approved by them. And uh, so your, your connection to like what's going on in the outer world is cut off because you're not really reading the news. You're not um, tuned in with like the social narrative of the time, right? So, okay, so that's another layer of removal. Your attention is now pretty much entirely fixated on what's going on in the inner globe of the ashram, right? And the people who live there and the events going taking place. Um, you also are encouraged to adopt a internal language. So we don't, we don't, um, uh, address each other by saying hi or hey or hello or um, goodbye you say to each other om or om namah shivaya namaste um so there's like a new language that you're asked to adopt you would never you would never say like hi sophie you'd be like om namah shivaya sophie <laughs> It's so interesting to me because even just the idea going back to the change of name, it, that requires a deep internal rewiring to then respond yeah. to somebody calling you something other than the name that you've associated with for however long you've been alive. Like, I just yeah. think for myself, if someone says Sophie and perhaps there's two Sophies in the room, I, my ears still perk up. It, I think it would be a real journey to retrain my brain to respond to a different name. And I think that is just a great reflection of how deep some of these seemingly simple things go. And mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about the music and the movies and contact with the outside world, that certainly, although I can understand for from the perspective of trying to create a container for learning and really deep diving yeah. into a specific topic, um, yeah. it it is problematic because there's just, <laughs> there's not a clear understanding of, of the whole picture of, of what's actually happening outside of your immediate circumstances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great way to summarize it. Um, it all kind of builds very surreptitiously um, where it's only like six months in that you realize like, whoa, I haven't talked to my family really in like months. I haven't been home right. in so long. I'm barely talking to my own friends. Um, yeah, it it really builds very slowly and and 
and sneakily. And of course, you know, like you said, it's not, um, you understand that they're trying to create a container and there was a lot, there were some benefits to these, these facts that I just listed um, in terms of loosening up some of the sort of stuck ways of being that I was in from before. But uh, that's, that's basically, those are the cult-like dynamics. Let's just leave it at that. For sure. Um, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, you mentioned that you lived at the ashram for a year. So why Mm. did you stay for so long? Because it wasn't, the teacher training wasn't a year long, correct? Mm -mm. So what, what kept you there? Do you think? Mm. Yeah. Um, just holding on to that enlightenment. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Today. today Going for gold. (laughs) Going for gold. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that is such a great question. There was a lot of opportunities there, um, for me. I really thought that I wanted to be one of the organization leaders. I thought that if I just stayed long enough, I would become a monk and Mm -hmm. I would be, you know, supported by the organization. My full-time living would just be teaching yoga. It sounded like a dream life. Mm -hmm. And I was quite convinced that the leaders of the organizations had some sort of knowledge or understanding of suffering in life and um, how to heal, how to become more free that I didn't already have. And I just thought that if I just held on and could make it through a little longer, then I would like absorb enough experience and information and wisdom to get free too. Mm. So I had like shaved my head, interestingly, um, three days before the level one teacher training. I was kind of going through a thing at the time already. Um, and all the monks had shaved heads and I was like, you know, we both like yoga. We've got this like sort of gender neutral aesthetic going on. Like maybe that looks like a really sweet path. You know, I would love to be sure. doing what they're doing. So I think I was holding on for that, for that consideration of that role of like, maybe that could be what I'm going to do. And I think we all do that at some level, like for myself and my own journey, I went to university, started teaching yoga, had a really hard time figuring out how to do that with no business knowledge at 20 years old. And Mm. then I moved back in with my parents and I felt this pressure of what's next. What are you going to do? You have to start making some serious money. Like you need to provide for yourself. And so I looked to the people around me and I looked Mm -hmm. to what are they doing? Do they seem to be happy and fulfilled? And at the time I had a few friends who were paralegals and we were very Mm -hmm. on par with each other educationally throughout uh, high school and university. And I saw that they went on to be paralegals and they were getting great opportunities. And I thought, why don't I do that too? And so I did. And it turns out that it wasn't for me. And I think that's just to highlight that we all do this. We see other people's success and we think, well, if I just copy and paste, I'll get the same results, but we're Mm -hmm. all unique and different. So (laughs) even if you follow the exact recipe for someone else's life, that doesn't mean that you're going to get the same results as them because you're just a different person. And that certainly sounds like what you were experiencing. Like for some of those monks, they may have been truly enlightened and fulfilled and not needed anything else. And that's 
fantastic. That's not to say that that's not a valuable way to live your life, but Mm -hmm. it obviously wasn't the path for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's precisely it. It's uh... okay. Yeah. I want you to share a bit about what life at an ashram is like, because I don't (laughs) think many people fully understand the extent of what you go through at Mm -hmm. this particular organization. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There's such, there's such a funny perception that like, oh, cat's like living in an ashram. She must just be so calm and just meditating like all day. And all she does is yoga for hours and hours and sounds so amazing. Like this perception that it's like a vacation basically. Yeah. And you can Not go to a an yoga ashram. retreat. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Ashram no. and yoga retreat. Very different. Yeah. But even, you know, like when you're working a yoga retreat or you're on staff at a teacher training, girl, you're working. Oh, you're working. (laughs) No rest for the wicked. You are the first one up and the last one to sleep. That's how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. So I liken it to being uh, like a parent of a gigantic family. Mm. So you hold the responsibility of all the guests and you're also living with your giant extended family. So like, just imagine it's you, it's your parents, it's your aunts and uncles, it's your cousins, it's your siblings. It's like your cousins, cousins, and it's like your siblings, kids, and it's just this massive family tree and you're all living together and you're all trying to work together. And you live together and you sleep together and you eat together and you never leave. (laughs) So it's just the overview. So the schedule, um, you are basically on call 24 seven. So you can get woken up in the middle of the night. You, I was once asked to go and set up a guest's room at like 10 PM because they had arrived late and I was in bed and they, came and knocked on my door, got me out of bed. Omnama Shivaya, we have an exciting opportunity for service for you. A guest has just arrived. We need you to make up their room. Oh my God. <laughs> I would be so grumpy. I was so pissed off. Yeah. I'm not excited about this opportunity for service. Um, so that's just like the overarching kind of like feeling of responsibility that you're holding all the time. And, and like lack of um, feeling of time off, much like a parent, I'm sure. But the day officially starts at 6 a.m. So you're up at like 5 or 5.30, do your morning thing. You get to the meditation hall for 6 a.m. And then you have an hour and a half of what's called satsang. So you meditate for 30 minutes or so. Then we do about 30 minutes of kirtan or singing, which is like super fun. And then there's 30 minutes for a Dharma talk. Then you have a staff meeting at 7.30 a.m. Just imagine. Yeah. So you're like sitting in a big room with all the other staff and the swamis. 7.30 a.m. That lasts 30 minutes. They delegate the duties for the day. You get your assignments. You're like, okay, I know what I'm doing today. Great. Then 8 a.m. is the first yoga class. Now, you may or may not be teaching it. You're kind of encouraged to take one yoga class a day. 
So if you're not teaching it, you could take it. And if you're not teaching or taking, you might have other duties like housekeeping, working in the kitchen, uh, reception, marketing, etc. Like groundskeeping. There's lots of other stuff that goes on. Um, the breakfast is served at 10 a.m., 10 to 11. Then you have about an hour off. And then uh, you're working again. There's another yoga class at four. So you're either teaching it, you're taking it, or you're back in the kitchen doing housekeeping, et cetera. Um, dinner is at six. So there's two meals a day. I would be hungry. Like breakfast <laughs> at 10? We all have I'm a strong chocolate habit. Yeah. <laughs> like we're hungry at eight. We're hungry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're hungry. So it was kind of nice to work in the kitchen because like you could sneak in an oatmeal bowl, you could grab some whatever nuts and whatever leftovers and kind of like fill those gaps in. Yeah. Um, so then dinner's at six till seven. Then there's another satsang at um depends on the ashram, but about eight, let's say eight till nine thirty. Then you have about 30 minutes, you clean up the meditation hall and you're back in your room by 10 p.m. So there's like not a lot of time in there where you're alone, where you're in your own room, where you're resting, where you have space for like your own interests and activities. Like your life is dedicated to the operation of the ashram and your own spiritual practices. That's a lot. It is a lot. And I mean... I certainly couldn't keep up with that pace. Like as a projector in human design, I require so much rest and downtime. Otherwise I just burn out. So mm-hmm. I, I certainly couldn't keep up with that pace of, of living long-term, but I, I can see the purpose it would serve short-term. And yeah. I definitely want to know what you got out of this experience. And I can say, you know, I've had a few friends who have also gone through the same organization and From my perspective, some of what they've gained is such a deep understanding of yoga in its most traditional sense, which I think is actually really hard to come by these days. Um, And, you know, whether that is things like chanting, satsang, like you said, um, you know, understanding Sanskrit, how to write, how to speak, uh, yoga philosophy, like it just goes really deep. And mm-hmm. I think that is something really special and sacred. And that is something that I would like to see protected. But the question becomes, does it need to be within this rigid context that it's being offered? It's like, can we adapt the yoga to fit this new world that we're living in, right? Like we're That's not living the way we were living all of those years ago when yoga was first born, it's like, we need to adapt with the times, but I want to acknowledge just that depth of knowledge that I want to acknowledge the depth of knowledge that the teachers I know that have gone through this program have. And it's, it is really quite amazing. So I'd love to know, like, what are some other things that you got out of this experience that have been beneficial for you? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I'll, I'll build off that point of education because I would agree, like the knowledge and education that I got from that experience was so, so transformational and incredibly profound. Um, Just imagine like you're sitting in two 30 minute 
live Dharma talks a day. Like every day you're getting an hour's worth of yoga philosophy. And you're also being taught what are called the four paths of yoga. So you're also living it. So, you know, you're in your um, Raja yoga practice. So you're doing your asana, you're doing your pranayama, you're doing your meditation, you're engaged in the jnana yoga. So you are studying the scriptural texts, you're reflecting on the meaning of your life, you're critically thinking in that regard. Um, you're engaged in the, in the um, bhakti yoga through kirtan and uh, other like Hindu traditional celebration um, processes of worship. So like puja and um, homas. And then you're also getting the uh, karma yoga practice being of selfless service and what that experience is, is like. Um, so it's profound. The, the lived experience, I couldn't duplicate it in any other way of actually what a more robust yogic lifestyle looks and feels like. Um, I also got the opportunity to participate in a whole bunch of other courses for free. Uh, well, cool. I guess I, pay, I paid for this two-week pranayama intensive, but I got to take uh, the yoga of recovery with a teacher who was phenomenal. So that was about yoga and addictions. I got to study some Vedic astrology, which was super fascinating. I also developed like other really basic life life skills of like how to cook for groups of up to a hundred people, um, how to housekeep like a boss, <laughs> um, how to lead teacher trainings. That's where I got my first start, like really being involved in teacher trainings. And um, I also was a was a lead teacher for a kids yoga camp there. So mm -hmm. that was phenomenal. Um, and then. Personally, I think it's where I started to do some really profound work around my relationship to food. Um, I think I would definitely say I had some disordered eating habits, but at the ashram, you have no control over your food. You're eating what's served and you have two times a day where you can eat what you want. So I started working with an Ayurvedic health coach. I started becoming more aware of my relationship with food and having to eat regularly in a community was extremely regulating for my nervous system. Um, and then I, I almost think like, no, I was going to say most significantly, maybe, I don't know, close second. I'm not sure. It really challenged my gender and sexual orientation. So I feel like the clothing and like not being able to wear my own clothes and not being able to have any kind of romantic or sexual relationships while I was living there meant that I was pulled out of my habit energy of relating with other people and allowed me to start deprogramming some of that like compulsory heteronormativity that we grow up in. It's like in the air we breathe. Um, I got to experience myself as a more like neutral gendered person, neutrally gendered person with the shaved head and sort of these like baggy clothes that are not super feminine in any way it was really liberating because mm -hmm. I've been so used to being in the energy of this like very feminine person and then 
in about the last three weeks of being at the ashram, I ended up meeting my life partner and now wife, Krista. So we didn't get together then, but we stayed in touch and got together several months later. So wow. it's like huge. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. And what was Krista doing there? Um, she became the head chef of the ashram in Vietnam. Cool. Wow. Yeah. And she's Canadian, correct? No, Krista's from Holland. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> quite amazing that that's how you two connected. Yeah. Yeah. She really says that she showed up again, like she'd already been through the ashram system. We actually kind of net out at the same amount of time, one year each, but she did it over several years and I did it all kind of in one go. Interesting. Um, yeah. So she, she says she went back that time for the community and then ended up getting the responsibility of being the head of the kitchen and she freaking loved it. So she stayed longer. Amazing. Um, yeah. And wow. then the thing that, the thing that I was going to say is the close second, or I'm not sure it kind of battles for first is just living in nature and living in community. We're yeah. like, I think healed a lot of the nervous system dysregulation and uh, trauma that I was carrying in a very passive way. Like it's nothing that I actively did. It wasn't a practice. It was just like, it's like a you, you soak a bag of tea in hot water and it turns into tea. It's like you soak a person in nature and community and that person heals. Mm. So mm, what a beautiful metaphor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I do. Yeah. So I think that's a big deal that can't be um, overlooked. Those conditions uh, are really important. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned that at around one year, you left the ashram. And so at what point did you consider leaving and what happened when you did leave? Mm. So I had committed to being at this ashram until August of, I think, 2018 in California. And I was starting to feel homesick and I had a return flight booked for sometime early November, I think. And I was like, okay, I'll just get through this and then I'm going to go home and, you know, we'll move on. And then, um, the lead Swami offered me a paid flight to their ashram in Vietnam. They were going to fly me there to continue being a part of their teacher trainings. And I was like, this is dope. I had had yeah. such an amazing experience <laughs> there first. I'd been there earlier in the year in Vietnam. I was like, sweet, I'm going to go back. It's going to give me this like same feeling as I had before. That'll be so helpful. Um, but I was honestly so freaking burnt out. I was experiencing vertigo. I had lost a lot of hair from stress. Mm. Um, just from the, like you said, Sophie, the lifestyle was unsustainable for me. Um, for sure. Being on for so many hours with very little rest. Um, and so around that time, things were kind of falling apart health-wise, and I started to consider other options. I was like, okay, maybe this monk plot line that I was really considering isn't it. Maybe I want to be teaching in the real world with like people who have jobs and who, 
um, are like, I want to, maybe I want to be like paying bills and having like my own home again. And maybe I want a family. And I was really just so strongly doubting the idea that, or like the definition of a spiritual life that was being painted for me by the lead Swami of like, staff life is the is the highest form of spirituality and if you're not doing this then you're like kind of failing as a spiritual or a yogic practitioner and like I'm just not so sure that that's the only way yeah I'm like I'm just not so sure it's so black and white you know yeah you started to question for sure which is healthy like that's, that's definitely something I feel like circling back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this episode is that when you're in a cult-like dynamic, they remove that critical thinking. They remove that ability to really question and ask questions and, you know, inquire deeper. Like they don't often allow you to entertain those kinds of conversations. No. And I, yeah. There isn't a conversation. <laughs> There's no conversation. And it's so appealing at first because you're like, sick, you all have the answers. You got it. I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to go searching. You found it. It's like For it's sure. like hitting a gold mine. You're like, amazing. I'm gonna retire. <laughs> I'm gonna be yeah, you're done. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. How alluring. How alluring. And then it's and it's then it's like not working. And you're like, shit, the method's not working. Uh-oh. Yeah. The now recipe what? didn't turn out the way they said it would. Yeah. So what happened when you were like, okay, I'm like, I'm going home. I'm leaving. How, how did, how did you leave? How did it end? How oh. did the saga end? Oh my God. It was really tough. There was a lot of anxiety in the buildup, of course. Um, so Krista and I had become friends and we were hanging out and, um, we were sitting in a mutual friend's room and she looked at me sideways and she's like, you're leaving, aren't you? I was like, yeah. And she was so she disappointed. Knew. Yeah. She knew. Um, and I think like even that evening I booked an appointment with the lead Swami and it was at like 7 p.m. after dinner so and the Swami's house is at the top of this like big hill so I had to like climb this hill to get to the Swami which is they don't don't make it easy no (laughs) yeah (laughs) so I get to the house and um Swami invites me into their room and we sit down and I had sent her an email prior being like I'm losing a lot of hair something's not right I think I need to have a conversation with you. So we, so we sit down and she's like, is it about your hair? Oh, it's just the hair loss. It's just your mind. So like my mind is a problem, which is why I'm experiencing this stress. So it's right. And I'm like, no, it's not about the hair. Like, you know, I'm thinking that my, my goals are changing and I'm thinking that I want to have a family. Uh, I'm interested in the possibility of having kids. And I feel like I'm, I'm wanting to be out in the world and teaching and like being of service in that way. 
And uh, she's like, well, the kids thing, it's, it's just your lower mind. It's just your lower mind who wants to have children, like the animal instinct to reproduce. <laughs> and I was like, I'm pretty sure parenthood is like a, a an extremely high spiritual path of of like selfless love and unconditional love and literally being totally. of service to another human being until you die. So I'm not sure I agree with that point. Um, and she was like, "Yeah, and you know." you just want to be a famous yoga teacher and you don't want to put in the grunt work that it takes. And, uh, you know, it just, it takes time to like get successful in this industry and you don't have patience. And I was like, Swamiji, I'm, I'm leaving. And, um, and I booked my flight as soon as I got back into my room and I left two days later and I was home on Christmas Eve. Oh, it was pretty nuts. Good for you for sticking to your guns though, because I think it would have been pretty easy to be gaslit into thinking, oh, I just want fame. And it is just my lower mind, my animal instincts wanting to reproduce and have children. And it's like, no, even if you did want to be a famous yoga teacher, there's nothing wrong with that desire. There is nothing wrong with the desire to want to have children, to want to leave a community because you're feeling called somewhere else. And I mean, I don't know this person personally, but it sounds like there was a lot of like threat and projection. Mm -hmm. And if you leave, what does that mean about me for staying, for choosing to stay for all of these years? What does that say about me? Right. And I can, I can see how this person would be triggered by you leaving. Yeah, that's, and to me, that's one of the strongest points about what makes it a cult like organization where there is pressure to stay Mm. and the people who choose to leave are quote unquote failing or not doing it right. And the people who choose to stay are the good ones. Mm. So I'm um, that's probably one of the decisions that I'm like the most proud of is that um, I was able to hold my guns with her. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that wouldn't be easy, especially a person in such power, you know, the Swami, like no big deal, you know, I literally, I'm like, I'd literally joined the organization because I thought the Swami was like the cat's meow. I was like, well, you're enlightened. You know, everything. Yeah. I want to be like you. And then the response to choosing to be myself (laughs) was, uh, quite um judgmental yeah yeah that's heartbreaking too Mm -hmm. at some level yeah it was a lot okay of course so what happened after you you come back home on christmas eve to be with your family god bless (laughs) what was that transition like back into everyday life and then also what was that transition like you know being in the yoga world after having experienced these cult-like dynamics Mm. Um, it was a freaking tough ride. <laughs> Sophie. Oh, I bet. Yeah. The easiest way to describe it that I've come to is like being like a turtle without a shell 
or you're like a snail without a shell. So you just feel like a living and nerve ending trying to navigate an extremely busy world. So just in like a sensory level, like it, it was like my nervous system was of a different vibration than the entire world around me. And it took me several months to years to actually feel like I was like, okay, being in this society again, like driving from my home to the GTA, I would be shaking. Like I would arrive and my whole body would be like vibrating due to the amount of stimulation and the intensity of the experience. Yeah. Some people make that drive every day. So for sure, that was a lot. Um, And then there was like deeper layers of having to come back into a trusting relationship with myself. So like reclaiming my sleep schedule, getting off of the ashram's daily schedule as like the quote unquote right way to live. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually I ended up even like breaking up with yoga and my asana practice because I just needed a break. I was just so... um, convinced that I had to practice every day the same sequence for this amount of time in order to be okay. So I had to practice not doing that to learn that like, no, I'm actually okay with or without this sort of magical thinking that doing these movements for this amount of time would protect me or keep me, keep me safe in a way. Right. Um, I got, I got really into pop music again. So one of my like biggest forms of therapy was being, um, like going out for hikes or being on this like elliptical that my parents had at home and listening to like Lady Gaga and blasting it and singing out loud, like really off tune and dancing, like dancing on the elliptical, dancing in the trails. Yeah. Just like the opposite of slow controlled movement and like you know, a specific way of being in relationship to music in in my body. Um, So bringing lots of play back in was key. And then just like very practically, like going to freaking therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And getting way more knowledge in terms of like the effects of colonialism, heteronormativity, racism, the patriarchy, capitalism, um, and starting to turn towards more like indigenous sources of knowledge has been something I've done for probably the last four years. And it's been, it's, it's in in its own pace. It's felt really kind of natural and not obsessive. Um, And learning more about like self-compassion and gentleness and ease and play and rest. Um, I'd say those have been some of the biggest tools coming out of that organization. Yeah. All so healing in their own right. And just, it sounds like a true reclamation of your true self, you know, Mm. who you really are as Katerina. Yeah. Which is like, you have to like redefine what spirituality is. And, and like really parse out the technical knowledge and the education that you have versus what like rings true for me. Mm. And, um, 
and hold all of it so much more lightly. I think that's actually the key is holding all of the information, all of the experiences with so much more lightness. So take the urgency off of healing, take the urgency and pressure off of getting anywhere in your, in your life, in your healing, in your spirituality and um, let it breathe. Big time. And yeah, just remembering it's not so serious, right? I think that there can just be this seriousness around yoga, whether that's in an ashram or at a yoga studio or whatever, because the material is serious. Like it Mm. is the self, it is our healing. It is our soul's journey. And we can forget that life is just meant to be lived. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to experience Mm -hmm. love and play and connection. And um, when healing becomes the only thing that we focus on, it's like, we don't actually heal Mm because we're not living. And like life is just meant to happen in the present moment. Yeah. Okay. This has all been so interesting to hear about your own journey. So thank you again for sharing. But before we wrap things up, I would love for you to share, you know, some signs that people can look out for if there may be cult dynamics at play and, and what, what would you do if you found yourself potentially in a situation that was, that was cult-like or had cult-like dynamics? Mm-hmm. Um, cult-like dynamics, right? Like it's so common actually. <laughs> so I'm going to yeah, I'm going to name time. some of these characteristics and you're going to be like, oh yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> Um, And they don't often all appear at the same time, which is why calling something a cult versus saying it has cult-like characteristics or dynamics is so different. Yeah. Um, So so here are some things you can look out for. So leaders who are really busy with telling you who you are and what works for you, rather than asking you amazing questions about your experience and what works for you or providing you with education so that you can do some critical thinking on your own. Um, The use of secret insider language (laughs) is a way to create sort of this inner locus of um, safety, being inside the group, and then outside the group, the people who are not like us are bad or not trustworthy. Um, Aggressive bids for loyalty. So again, people who stay in the organization are to be trusted. They're living their lives well. People who are leaving are failing. An overarching vibe of control is sort of like the last point where you you feel as though control is sort of the underlying MO of how we're operating together. What to do if you find yourself in such an organization or in such dynamics, oh my goodness, keep coming back to yourself and start to create more separation between yourself and the organization if you can and if it's safe to. I know some organizations, there can be like a threat to your safety if you start to show behaviors of distancing. So that's why I say what you're able to. You can continue to ask yourself the questions of what do I want? And who am I? Mm. Nobody can answer these questions except you. So be patient with the answers. It's okay if you don't know right away. Um, You can ask yourself from a broad perspective, does this organization, is what they say 
aligned with their actions and their words. So organization preaching peace, preaching um, love and unity, but then the swamis lose their, they go off the handle and they scream at people and um, they're demeaning. That seems not to be a fit. Be aware of things, situations and examples like that. Is there space for you to be your individual expressed self or do you need to start becoming more like everyone else in order to be accepted? Can you be yourself here? Try to maintain your relationships with people outside the organization, like your family, your friends, and other support systems. So I'm really lucky. I was still in touch with my mentor. I was still in touch with my friends. I was still in touch with my family. Mm. And if necessary, get outside support because it's really hard sure. when you're alone, when you feel alone. Yeah. Wow. I think those are all such valuable reflection questions and yeah, we just can't undermine the fact that these cult-like dynamics can range from being very minuscule to be to being life-threatening, you know? Mm-hmm. So seeking support where you can, reconnecting with friends and family, letting them know that you need help, asking for help is, is major. Mm-hmm. Okay. To start to wrap things up, I would love to know how this experience has impacted you and your teaching specifically and the way that you mentor and, and support new and experienced yoga teachers. Mm. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It's had a massive impact. Um, from a positive sense, I would say I've carried on with my sense of valuing the four paths of yoga And I continue to teach, well, I teach three of the four. I'm not teaching Kirtan or Bhakti Yoga, um, but I offer experiences in the other three paths because I think we all have different ways of learning and um, our personalities are more inclined to different ways of engaging in spirituality. So I continue to offer that in my services. And I would say that in how I interact with students and in how I mentor other yoga teachers, I am so interested in their unique individual experience. Mm. And I hope to provide education and deep questioning that supports people discovering who they are for themselves. And I practice continuously practice letting go of the idea that I know better than anyone else what works for them because I know so deeply what it feels like to have that taken away from me for sure um when I when I launch my group mentorship program there is a real there's going to be a real emphasis on the wisdom of the group and that even though I am hosting and facilitating I am 100% not the like wisest of them all or the one with all the answers, I might have more experience, um, which will enable me to ask great questions and share more education and more information, but pooling on the knowledge of the group and having the group be critically thinking and asking good questions is like one of my biggest values. So I'm really excited to just be um, creating a space where those are the values. I'm just 
I think it's so needed and necessary. I'm, I'm like getting butterflies about it. I'm so excited about doing that. Mm. Um, yeah. So I would say those are some, those are some top ways. Awesome. Yeah. And I think like you're ultimately creating the experience that you wish that you had and the experience that you know will be needed based on you having unfortunately experienced the opposite of that, of of having experienced something and it not being what you, you hoped and intended for it to be. So I love that you're creating these truly safe containers for teachers to come together to develop their craft. And I just can't speak highly enough about you and all of your work. So where can the listeners find you and stay up to date with your offerings and get more information about your group mentorship program? Yeah. Um, so my website is just katarinayoga.com and my newsletter is pretty active. I send a weekly update. So that's probably the top way to stay. That is the top way to stay in touch with my latest offerings. Um, I'm also quite active on social media. So you can go to my handle, which is at uh, Katarina Yoga. Or no, I changed it. It's Katarina Whitcamp. <laughs> Katarina Whitcamp. And um yeah, I post a lot of content there on a weekly basis. So uh, awesome. Definitely connect through Instagram. Yeah. And I'll be sure to include your website and your Instagram in the show notes so people can easily access that. And I just can't say thank you enough for being here, for sharing your story and for, you know, educating people on what it means to be involved in a cult or a cult-like dynamic and helping to break down some of those preconceived notions of what it might be and what it might look like. So thank you so much. And I just can't wait to continue to learn from you and grow with you and teach with you. Kat and I often collaborate together. So keep your eye out for future collaborations and be well, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.